Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello, and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. I'm a writer, a storyteller, and definitely a huge history nerd. And I've got a fantastic story for you today. And if you listened to my last podcast episode, which was about Brian Burke and the WA Inc. scandal, then I'll let you know right off the bat that this is going to be quite a change of pace. But before we get into the story, I just want to start by paying my respects to the First Nations people of Western Australia, and in particular, the Wujari Noongar people of the Esperance area. The First Nations people have a history and a connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, to begin with today. So I've got a great story for you today. Today we're headed to space, for at least part of our story. This is the story of a space station. And of course, I'm sure that's given the story away right from the start. Yes, today we're talking about Skylab. And if you live in the Esperance area of Western Australia, then I'm sure that you've heard quite a bit of that, a bit about Skylab. It's a bit of a local story down here. But if not, you might be wondering what was the situation. So let me explain. In 1979, a very interesting situation was occurring. NASA's first space station, Skylab, was being dragged dangerously close to Earth's atmosphere. Skylab had been orbiting the Earth for six years by this stage, and the drag had been occurring for some time. And of course, this was really quite concerning for NASA, but also for, really, any number of the Earth's inhabitants who don't really want to be hit by falling space debris. NASA had been hoping for funds to send a shuttle to Skylab to boost it into a higher orbit, but the funds did not eventuate and the drag was happening a lot faster than was originally anticipated. Eventually, in 1979, NASA ground controllers confirmed that they were preparing for a controlled re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. This led to a lot of concern worldwide about Skylab's re-entry. In the Philippines, for example, the president had to make a televised address to calm public panic. Now, you might think that this was all a big to-do about nothing, but this wasn't the first time that this had happened. The year before, the Soviet Union's satellite, Cosmos 954, had the same problem. It was orbiting the Earth and began to be dragged into the Earth's atmosphere. Now, this particular satellite was powered by a nuclear reactor, and it had a specially designed system which would expel the nuclear core so that it would not re-enter the Earth's atmosphere with the satellite. But this system failed. The Cosmos 954 had only been launched in September 1977, and very early on, its orbit became erratic. The ground crew controlling it realised that it wouldn't be long before it would be pulled into the Earth's atmosphere. And this was in the middle of the Cold War, as you'll probably remember from your high school history classes. But despite the very frosty relationships between the Soviet Union and Western nations, Russia gave the USA and Canada a warning that the falling satellite might be headed their way. The Cosmos 954 entered the atmosphere in January 1978, just a few months after it had been originally launched over Western Canada, 
and it disintegrated, scattering debris over a 600-kilometre-long path across Canada. Fortunately, this was an area of Canada which was not heavily populated. Some of the debris had been contaminated by the nuclear reactor, which had failed to eject, and this debris was radioactive. Some of it was so radioactive that it would kill a person who was too close to it for too long. Of course, something had to be done about this radioactive debris which was scattered across the country. So the government set about organising a clean-up. The clean-up of the Cosmos 954 debris took the Canadian government a couple of years and they eventually sent the bill for this clean-up, which was over six million Canadian dollars, to the Russians. The Soviet Union did eventually pay half of that. 3 million Canadian dollars. So you can see why there was a bit of concern about Skylab. It wasn't nuclear powered, but it was also not just a satellite, like Cosmos 954. It was a whole space station. So for comparison, Cosmos 954 weighed 3,800 kilograms at launch, and Skylab weighed over 76,000 kilograms. Skylab was roughly the size of a small three-bedroom house. Understandably, that would cause a bit of concern if it was going to disintegrate and fall to the ground over top of where you might live. So before we talk a bit more about what happened with Skylab, let's just back up a little bit and give you a little bit more information about Skylab itself. Skylab was NASA's first space station And interestingly, it was the only space station ever operated exclusively by the United States. It was first launched in May 1973. Skylab was 36 metres long and 6.7 metres wide. So you can understand why people might have been apprehensive about it. Skylab had a private living space for each astronaut on board that was about the size of a walk-in closet. It also had a shower, and as you can imagine, designing a shower that could be used in zero gravity was quite a difficult task. This shower had a cylindrical shower curtain that went from floor to ceiling. It had foot restraints so that you didn't float around during your shower, and it had a vacuum system to suck away the water. It took the astronauts about two and a half hours to have a shower, including setup and packing away of the shower system. Skylab's onboard computer system was an IBM computer that had a 16,000 word memory and it was backed up onto a tape drive. There were two versions of its operating system. One was an 8 kilobyte program and one was a 16 kilobyte program. Considerably more primitive than the phone that I have in my pocket. This computer weighed 45 kilograms and it consumed about 10% of the space station's electrical power. So, Skylab was first launched in May 1973 using a modified Saturn V rocket. And if you're a bit rusty about your dates, as I am sometimes, the moon landing had only happened a few years before, in 1969. During Skylab's launch, a micrometeoroid shield and solar panel were torn off and another solar panel was damaged, putting the entire mission at risk of damage or running out of power. So 
The three astronauts who arrived at the orbiting Skylab space station later that month on a mission called Skylab 2 had some work to do. These astronauts were Commander Charles Conrad, along with Paul Weitz and Joseph Kerwin. These astronauts conducted a record-breaking three-hour, 25-minute spacewalk in order to repair the damage to the station. The repairs were successful, and this was the first time that this kind of thing had been done in space. And the Skylab 2 crew stayed on board the Skylab station for 28 days, breaking the record of the Soviet Soyuz 11 crew for the longest time spent in space. The second manned mission to the Skylab station arrived in July 1973, and it was referred to as the Skylab 3 mission. The astronauts of Skylab 3 were Commander Alan Bean, Jack Luisma, and Owen Garriott. This mission broke further records with a 6-hour, 29-minute spacewalk to conduct further repairs to the station. They also spent a record 59 days in space. The Skylab 4 mission arrived in November of 1973 with Commander Gerald Carr, William Pogue and Edward Gibson on board. The Skylab 4 once again extended the record of the longest Skylab to seven hours and they spent a record-breaking 84 days in space. And I would certainly be feeling a little bit antsy about living in a space the size of Skylab for 84 days. And while the Skylab 4 crew were in space, the Soviet Soyuz 13 was launched with two Russian astronauts on board. So that meant there was a total of five people in space all at the same time. And this record, five people in space at the same time, stood for nine years. And this all brings us to 1979, when Skylab, which was unmanned by this time, started orbiting closer and closer to Earth, being slowly dragged into the Earth's atmosphere. And as I said, this was happening a lot sooner than NASA had anticipated. They had hoped to keep using the station, which was still habitable and still had water and food supplies on board. But although NASA hoped that they would be able to send a rocket up to boost Skylab further out into space, lack of funding and delays with this rocket meant that it wasn't ready in time and it became pretty clear that Skylab was going to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and break up on the way to the ground. This was a worldwide media event by this time, with some opportunistic people selling t-shirts with bullseyes on them and Skylab repellent with a money-back guarantee if it didn't work. NASA ground controllers had tried to adjust Skylab's orbit so that the debris from the disintegrating spaceship would land in the Indian Ocean. Due to a slight error in calculations, the debris instead landed hundreds of kilometres further east than anticipated, across the southeast of Western Australia. In fact, Skylab landed right over the area stretching from Esperance to Balladonia and further out towards Rawlina Station. The debris landed at around 2.37am on the 12th of July 1979. Locals reported hearing a series of sonic booms and seeing a flaming trail in the sky. Many Esperance people who knew that this was going to be happening went up to the local landmark, Wireless Hill, to watch the re-entry, with some people describing it as being like fireworks. 
As newspapers around the world reported on this event, a newspaper in San Francisco offered a $10,000 prize to the first person to bring a piece of Skylab to their office within 48 hours of re-entry. A 17-year-old Esperance local called Stan Thornton found pieces of Skylab in his yard and, with the help of a Perth radio station and Qantas Airlines, he flew to San Francisco to claim the prize, just in time. Apparently, Stan used this prize money to marry his girlfriend and to build a house. Money went a lot further back in those days. The Esperance Shire Council gave NASA a $400 fine for littering. This was tongue-in-cheek, of course, but NASA didn't pay it, not surprisingly. Some years later, a radio station paid the fine. Apparently, after the re-entry, the US president of the time personally rang the owners of the Baladonia Roadhouse and Hotel, where a lot of the debris fell, and apologised to them. Of course, a lot of people went out and found a lot of the debris, which, which was then returned to NASA. But in 1993, so that's 14 years after the re-entry, Esperance farmers Jeff and Pauline Gruer found an oxygen tank, a large oxygen tank nearly the size of a small car, on their property east of Esperance, which had fallen from Skylab. And certainly it is fortunate that that didn't fall on a person or a house. During its six years in orbit, Skylab made possible some very significant achievements in space travel. A great many experiments were done on board Skylab, as well as observations and photography of the sun and the comet Kohutek. Other experiments involved taking two spiders, who were named Anita and Arabella, on board to see how they were able to spin webs in zero gravity. And I'm very sorry to report that I don't actually know what happened to Anita and Arabella, but I do hope that they made it back to Earth safely. The Skylab program cost 2.2 billion US dollars, which would be over 10 billion US dollars today. As well as being a significant part of the US space program, Skylab also led to great advancements in our knowledge of space. Skylab made possible the development of the International Space Station and it was a precursor to many of the things that we see happening in this sphere these days. Around 30 pieces of Skylab have been donated to the Esperance Museum. They've got a really amazing display about Skylab and it's really well worth a look. So the next time you're in Esperance, go and check it out. So there you have it. That's the story of Skylab. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you've got any feedback, please do get in touch. I'll put the details of how you can get in touch into the show notes. Details about some of the references that I've used in putting together this podcast can be found on my website, which is www.wildwapodcast.com. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate your company and I'll be back again soon with another wild story from Western Australia's past. 